How important is resistance when it comes to parasitic infections in sheep and goats? How concerned should we be? And what can we do about it? Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of the FAST podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Roach. This podcast series is brought to you by the Farmed Animal Antimicrobial Stewardship Initiative, or FAST for short. This series explores how antimicrobial resistance impacts livestock production, what antimicrobial stewardship looks like in daily practice, and the different views on challenges and potential solutions to reducing our reliance on antimicrobials moving forward. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Andrew Peregrine, an associate professor at the University of Guelph whose research has explored the spread and impact of parasitic infections and the development of parasite control programs to minimize the rate of drug resistance. So, let's get into it. So today we have uh, Dr. Andrew Peregrine with us. Thanks for doing this, Andrew. Really appreciate it. No, you're welcome, Steve. So, um, you know, you've had a, a pretty long and exceptional career with the University of Guelph doing quite a bit of different research um, and really just interested in getting some of your, you know, thoughts and opinions on uh, resistance and how that plays a role in, in small ruminant production uh, and health management. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done as a professor at the University of Guelph? What is getting you excited about doing some of this work? Actually, the thing that got me most excited was has actually over the years been seeing, been seeing the passion that um, small ruminant producers um, have about their livestock, wanting to practice best practices, mm-hmm. um, being incredibly informed about latest developments. And that's actually challenged us over the years um, to be progressive with respect to the things we're looking at and, and addressing things that producers want addressing. The whole issue of anti-parasitic resistance actually wasn't even on the horizon when I came to the university in 1997. No, at that point, no one was talking about uh, anti-resistance to dewormers and small ruminants. Hmm. Everyone assumed they were working. And then over the next few years, the first few years after I arrived, and so that's up until the early 2000s, we started hearing reports from producers and vets saying they didn't think the dewormers they had were working as well as they used to. Um, And so about 15, 16 years ago, we decided actually to look into that because we'd heard enough people going, I don't think, for instance, ivermectin, which back then was the only antiparasitic proof for use uh, in sheep. We were hearing so many people saying, I don't think it's working the way it's working. And a number of people said, well, it's just poor administration. But we kept thinking there's always been poor administration. (laughs) There's no reason that that would have got any worse. Mm -hmm. Something else is changing. And then uh, one summer, I'll never forget, in about 2004, 2005, we uh, heard of a sheep farm actually in northern Ontario. So at least six, seven hours drive north of Guelph. So it is northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they said to us, we've been using ivermectin and it it's, doesn't seem to be working at all. And so we went up there. Um, we looked, we did fecal egg counts on a whole bunch of sheep at pasture during the grazing season. And they certainly were high, mm-hmm. even though they had been dewormed with ivermectin. Um, that 
and if you get a high egg count shortly after deworming within two weeks, that just tells you the deworming didn't work. We call that drench failure. But that could be due to underdosing, it could be due to other issues, but it could be due to drug resistance. So we, after doing that, we then sent a student up there um, and to do what's called a faecal egg count reduction test. And so what they do is they collect faecal samples from um, groups of animals, typically 10 to 15, um, and then on the day that all the faecal samples are collected, um, we then treat um, all the animals with recommended dosages. And so one of the drugs was ivermectin. Mm-hmm. We also looked at three other dewormers as well. Um, and then if the drugs are working, if you go back two weeks later and do more, um, collect more faecal samples and get egg counts in a group of animals, you, if it's working, you should see the egg count dropping by at least 95%. And on that farm, the egg counts hardly dropped at all. Wow. And so it was very surprising that, A, the first description of drug resistance, so it was resistance to ivermectin, was a farm in northern Ontario. And the other interesting thing is almost all the resistance was in a parasite called Haemonchus, um, which historically had not been a big issue, um, but it did seem to be getting worse in Ontario. And unlike almost any other parasite of sheep, it will kill sheep or pasture, particularly okay. young animals. So they had drug resistance and... They had it in the nastiest parasite of sheep, Haemonchus, a parasite that kills sheep. Um, And so that was a big surprise. And it was even more of a surprise, actually, Steve. The reason it was a big surprise and why we didn't think there would be resistance is because a year or two before that, we'd done a survey on use of antiparasitics on sheep farms across Ontario. And the data we'd obtained indicated that most sheep producers don't deworm more than one and a half to two times a year. Mm. So no sheep gets more than two dewormers a year. To put that in comparison, if you go to places like New Zealand that keep sheep on pasture year round, many sheep producers will deworm their sheep eight to 12 times a year. Really? Wow. So they've seen drug resistance for many years and we looked at them and we thought it'll never happen here because we don't deworm like that. So one and a half, two times a year. So we were extremely surprised when we saw, well, this farm hadn't been deworming more than two times a year, and yet they've got significant problems mm-hmm. with resistance to ivermectin. And that's really where all our work, and it's not just me, there's been a whole group of people, students and faculty at the Vet College and in industry, um, who've been looking at this issue ever since. And so the obvious question after that was say, okay, that was a farm in northern Ontario. Let's do, let's look at a whole bunch of um, flocks across, right across southern Ontario. And so we essentially um, did the whole process. We went out to farms that were using ivermectin, which was the most common dewormer at the time. Um, and we looked at, tried to find farms where the ivermectin didn't appear to be working, where they had drench failure. And it was occurring on a lot of farms farms. Um, and so we went back and did the test, the faecal egg count reduction test, to, to get clear evidence. Is the drench failure due to drug resistance or is it due to something else? Mm-hmm. Many of the drug companies were saying, oh, it's not drug resistance. It's just inappropriate, u- inappropriate use. But we were getting, as for the reasons I've just mentioned, more and more suspicious that it likely wasn't inappropriate use because there's always been an inappropriate use and that is not likely to have changed. 
So we went out, initially we went out to 29 farms and evaluated the efficacy or the activity of ivermectin or ivermec. Um, and quite to our surprise, on those 29 farms, there was clear evidence of resistance in 27 out of the 29 farms. Wow. So nearly every farm that we evaluated the performance of that drug, there was resistance to it. Resistance, yeah. So so that was a bit of a surprise. And then we thought, well, okay, so if there's resistance to ivermectin, the other drug that is commonly used, historically commonly used, even though it wasn't approved, is a drug called fenbendazole, proved under the name typically Safeguard or Panicure. Um, we knew people had been using it. And the reason to look at that drug as well is it's in a different drug class. So if you've got resistance to ivermectin, you wouldn't expect the parasites to be resistant to this other drug. But we did know it had been used. And so we evaluated its performance on 20 of the same farms. And all 20 of them had resistance to that drug as well. Hmm. So almost every farm we looked at had resistance both to ivermectin, ivermec and fenbendazole or safeguard. We did look at a third drug called levamisole, which hadn't been used historically, could only be obtained um, through compounding pharmacies at the time, okay. but you could get it. It's in a different drug class, but it essentially had not been used. Uh, and we looked at 17 farms, and there was only one farm with low levels of resistance, mm. so, so which, which was good because it indicated there is a drug that still works, even though it's not commercially available. You have to get it from a compounding pharmacy. Um, however, uh, unless we become more responsible in the way we use antiparasitic drugs, we're going to have resistance to that drug as well. Um, and and so that was the situation back about in the bats of the year 2007, no, about 2010, where we documented that widespread resistance. But I think the obvious, the obvious question at the time was, well, you know producers don't deworm more than one and a half to two times a year. How come you have the same problems with resistance that they seem to in New Zealand, mm -hmm. where they use dewormers much, much, more. much more commonly? And over a year or two of doing our various studies, I think what we almost assume is the issue that's going on is there's two things that drive the rapid development of resistance to dewormers on sheep flocks. Number one, all, most all the resistance we're seeing in is Haemonchus, the same parasite we demonstrated was resistant in northern Ontario. Now, the significance of that is a number of studies we've shown have indicated that whilst all the gastrointestinal parasites we deworm for live quite happily during the summer months on pasture, Haemonchus is the one parasite that does not survive the Canadian winter. Mm. So, for instance, if you go out to a pasture in the spring, essentially it's clean of that parasite. So where does that parasite survive the winter? So it survives the winter inside sheep. Right. So that's how it survives the winter, which is different from other parts of the world, which don't have such severe winters. But it's the one parasite that spends the whole of the winter in sheep. And the reason that's significant is because a historically a common practice on sheep farms was to deworm all ewes just before they lambed. And so those are ewes indoors, typically in the spring. Mm -hmm. So you dewormed, producers dewormed all of them. So all you have left in those sheep after deworming a drug-resistant haemonchus, right. you then turn the sheep out on pasture, which is clean 
for Haemonchus in the spring. That is, there aren't any on pasture. And the only parasites that end up contaminating the pasture in the spring are drug-resistant ones. Um, and then ironically, we've got some evidence that, in fact, even the drug levamisol I mentioned that we knew was working really well, mm-hmm. Farmers that switch to using that, certainly on one farm, we observe within two years, within two years of starting to use a drug that worked well, within two years of on a farm that was deworming all use at lambing, just prior to turnout, they had significant resistance to wow. the ramisol. So it's a management practice sure. that seems to be driving this and a biological phenomenon here in Canada that Haemonchus doesn't survive the winters on pasture. Mm-hmm. So it's almost just a... It's perfect conditions, really, given the management and then just the life cycle of this particular... I mean, you know, folks in New Zealand, I think, would say, you know, if you're only deworming one and a half to two times a year, you shouldn't get resistance. But one of the things everyone's starting to talk about in the sheep world, in fact, every animal species now, is is an issue called refugia. And the word refugia means it refers to parasites that are in the environment, um, and so for gastrointestinal parasites, typically there are a lot of parasites in the environment during the grazing season. Mm-hmm. But if you deworm animals when there's no refugia, right, so there's no parasites in the environment that can dilute resistant ones that sheep are putting out in feces. If you do it at the time of the year when there's no refugia, you're maximizing the rate at which resistance is likely to occur. Right. So one of the things we're trying to encourage producers certainly um, is when you de well two things number one when you deworm try and do it at a time of the year when there's parasites in the same environment that can dilute resistant parasites but the other thing is don't deworm everyone mm-hmm. because because the the issue is around lambing time there are some ewes that do need deworming certainly there is but typically it's only a small percentage it's probably 20 30 percent of animals actually need deworming and so i think a mantra that many of us are coming up with these days is no longer should you be deworming everyone only deworm those animals that actually need deworming right so not whole flock treatment but selective treatment so yeah selective treatment and the reality is that actually saves a large amount of money Sure. Because yeah. there's a lot of deworming you actually don't need to use that you're wasting. And by over-medicating, just as with antibiotics, you're increasing the rate at which resistance is going to occur. And surprisingly, it can occur extremely quickly uh, in Haemonchus, which of all the parasites of sheep is by far the nastiest. Most significant, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, to go to leave small ruminants for a minute and go to dairy where there's this big talk about how we address mastitis and is it, um, and, and well, other infections, especially during the dry off period. And traditionally, we've done blanket treatment with antibiotics um, during the dry off period. And then as a way to reduce that, um, the much of the research and much of the recommendations are saying, let's go to selective treatment now. Let's evaluate using some, you know, performance indicators and uh, and do that. And you, so we're hearing that uh, here as well in small ruminants. What are some of the key things that producers need to be doing in order to be effective at the selective treatment? What are, what are the indicators they need to be looking at? Is it egg counts uh, at a certain time of year? So there's a number of different parameters can be used to identify the animals that need treatment. Historically, we always said we'll do fecal egg counts right. um, and get the number of eggs per gram of feces. It's easy, I think, for us to say that's what you should be doing, but the logistics of A, collecting fecal samples from everyone and then paying a diagnostic lab to evaluate all those fecals, um, for many people, is just prohibitively expensive and time-consuming. We're now increasingly realizing that, in fact, on sheep farms, you can use clinical parameters 
instead. So, for example, haemonchus, which is the really nasty one, um, causes anemia. Okay. Now, historically, you could have determined if an animal was anemic by collecting a blood sample and getting that analyzed. But again, that's prohibitively expensive. Yes. But there is a system called the Fermatia system, all right, which basically um, you, you hold up some diagrams of different colors of the eye. All right. So it's just, it's just different colors of pink. Right? And only animals that are below a certain threshold that are anemic or have white mucous membranes around the eyes, only those... Um, get treated and that's an easy thing no to do like you can just and typically it's recommended you do that a month before lambing okay. you take what's called the formatcher chart and you hold the chart beside the eye of each sheep and you decide which animals are sufficiently anemic or are anemic and therefore need deworming there are actually resources to do online training um, a number of um, websites provide training for producers to learn how to formatch a score of the sheep. As I said, it's, it's easy to do. It's quick. And so you can go through a group of ewes, typically a month before they lamb, uh, and that can help you identify those that actually need the, need the deworming, and then the others can be left alone. Right. But it's one of the important things is to appreciate, certainly here, is that there are ewes that need deworming around lamb, lambing. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's extremely important to deworm use then, not only for their health, because haemonchus actually will kill ewes at lambing. Um, those are haemonchus that have been dormant inside the animal that have then resumed development around lambing. So there is a health impact if you don't deworm. But the other thing that's really important is because haemonchus doesn't survive the winter on pasture, it's those ewes um, contaminate the pasture when they're turned out. So the lower the parasite in those burden in those ewes when you turn them out, the less likely you are to run into problems with parasite burdens on pasture being a problem in the second half of the grazing season. Hmm. It's usually the second half of the grazing season when parasite burdens on pasture are their worst. Right. But what drives the end result of high or low burdens is the level of parasite contamination in the spring when you turn out the ewes. So it is important to deworm ewes mm-hmm. prior to turnout, but only deworm those that need it. So if you use a formatcher system, you treat those that are anemic. All the others, and it's usually 60-70% of animals will be left untreated. So mm-hmm. that's a big saving. Sure. Those animals will contaminate the pasture but with low numbers of parasites, but they're also parasites that have not been exposed to a dewormer. So they're drug-susceptible parasites, mm-hmm. and so will dilute out the resistant ones that are shed by the ones that have been dewormed. So that's a very practical parameter that can be done in use. It's also recommended that you do that um, during the grazing season, um, particularly in animals in their first grazing season, because youngsters in the first year of life typically don't have much immunity. And so if haemonchus is going to cause clinical problems, um, it will do that in lambs during the first grazing season, and it will kill them. And the recommendation usually is to start for matcher scoring June time in Ontario right, and keep doing it every few weeks, certainly until September. The other thing I think to also that's very important to appreciate, there's a lot of things you can do um, to try and help reduce parasite burdens on pasture. All right. Um, but the other, there are a few things important to appreciate. The certain climate conditions will help the parasite build up mm-hmm. or will result in parasite burdens dropping. So, for instance, a grazing season um, where it rains a lot of the summer and remains, it remains hot and humid, that's great for Haemonchus surviving. Um, however, if it goes very dry, what happens is those parasites can't survive in the environment. I, I usually refer to that as the lawnmower um, f- um, 
I always get people, students, to think about it as with respect how often you mow the lawn. So if I'm mowing the lawn once a week right throughout the summer, that's a good year for parasite survival and pasture. But if it's one of those Augusts where I give up mowing for the whole month because it's not been raining, it's very dry, that type of summer, parasite burdens typically have dropped off significantly on pasture. So the climate has a big impact on how parasites survive and whether they can build up to significant levels. Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the interesting things about that is historically, we never saw Haemonchus problems in the prairie provinces. But just in the last few years, both Saskatchewan actually and Alberta have started describing significant clinical problems. And almost certain it's because the climate is becoming more humid, yep. even in their summers. Yeah, I was going to ask you how climate change is affecting that. How is that changing? Do we see a change in Ontario, like in northern Ontario? I mean, it's amazing we're seeing some of those resistance or... Um, characteristics back then are we seeing more issues there i realize the density of farms is probably higher down here but southern ontario climate has certainly changed uh, yes yeah, southern ontario climate is very clearly changed and it's very clear climate change for instance is driving the change in risk of exposures to ticks so mm. all the discussion you're hearing today about lyme disease yep. excuse me is due to the invasion of a new tick uh, into ontario and that's one of the big drivers has been change in the climate whether we're not sure whether we're seeing changes yet in Ontario, all right, because of climate change, but all the predictions are that we will. Mm-hmm. So our summers are going to, or the summers are going to be longer. Yep. They're going to probably become hotter and more humid. Everything that's perfect for Haemonchus. No so there's more time, there's A, going to be more time for it to build up on pasture. So there's going to be more parasites on pasture. If it becomes more humid, and all the suggestions are that is likely to happen. And that's what ticks need. So ticks do best when it becomes more humid. Um, and as I said, we're already seeing many more ticks than we used to over much bigger areas. It's very, it's very, very likely that the Haemonchus burdens on pasture are going to get higher and higher and won't drop off, won't die off as quickly as they used to. Right. So, no, I mean, that's a, it's a very valid point. And so what's happening, I, I suspect that, you know, the fact that the first farm we ever saw drug resistance on is, was in northern Ontario, that was a big surprise because mm-hmm. climate-wise, we didn't think Haemonchus could even survive up there. But, but it is, and it's killing sheep up there. And almost certainly it's a climate issue that's driving that. Right. No, it's interesting, Steve, when Paula Menzies and myself have been going to conferences to colleagues elsewhere in the world, everyone goes, well, you obviously don't have Haemonchus in Canada. <laughs> But but actually we do, and in fact we have typically now worse clinical problems than many other countries. Uh, right. And well, it, yes, just as far as the impact of Haemonchus okay. during the grazing season, and also the fact that Haemonchus will kill ewes around lambing. It's called the disease is called type two Haemonchosis. It just means that overwintered Haemonchus in the ewes. When they resume development, uh, that's just called type 2 disease, um, that actually will kill ewes, and, and if it doesn't, will make them significantly anemic. Hmm. Uh, and not many other countries see that phenomenon. Really? They'll see Haemonchus on pasture, but they won't see type 2 disease, or that is disease at the end of the winter months. They won't see that typically in ewes. We don't know why. Okay. It's a Canadian phenomenon, 
that that we see and hear about significantly every spring. Do we see, we so we don't see that in like a, a Scotland or something like that that might have I don't know if they have the similar type of winter that we would have in terms of some of those northern parts, but I, I would have guessed they would have some areas would have similar climates that could experience that. Yeah, ironically, actually, Scotland has almost no humongous. Their, really? sum, their summers aren't warm enough. Okay, probably, but but in the UK, it's humongous has has, has started to get worse in the southern part of England and it's spreading north. Is that right? But but the countries, so they don't have a lot of humongous. But if you go to places, for instance, like Australia, that has a lot. Mm-hmm. All right, um, and they also keep their sheep on pasture year round. Um, they see a lot of clinical hemonchosis on pasture, um, but they don't see the dormant form resuming development in ewes the way we do. And it's probably, I don't know, it's probably our winters that drive that, because that certainly drives dormancy. So in the fall, when animals are ingesting parasites off pasture, those parasites go dormant inside the animal, and they spend the winter there. Um, You see the same phenomenon in the tropics during dry seasons, so the parasites, even in that environment, have learnt to survive the dry season. And then once it starts raining, they typically resume development. But I, I, there's very few places that see this nasty form of disease um, in ewes just before lambing at the end of the winter months or at the end of the dry season, hmm. where that's more applicable. Interesting. What do you think some of the biggest challenges are then moving forward for us as Canadians or Ontarians? What are, where does the focus need to be if this is the reality from a climate perspective and maybe the evolutionary aspects of, of homonchus in particular? I think, one, I think one of the very encouraging things about the sheep industry is the fact, in fact, unlike almost any other animal industry, I think sheep producers are much more aware of the clinical problem mm-hmm. and of the need to be doing things pro- proactively to prevent the situation getting worse. We, we see just as much drug resistance in parasites of horses um, uh, and almost as many in parasites of cattle. The difference is sheep are infected with hemonchus. And unlike the parasites and other animals that have got resistance, hemonchus is deadly. Mm. And so it kills a lot more animals. And so I think producers, they're seeing the clinical impact of drug resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the encouraging things is that a lot of producers are much more aware of some of the things that can be done, of the need to treat animals selectively, so treating only those that need it. If hemonchus is the issue, many producers have got online training to do for matcha scoring of animals and are using that both in ewes and lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use other clinical parameters. So, for instance, DAG scoring, which is scoring the amount of soiling around the rear end, all right, so that gives an indication of how loose or firm the feces is. If you score like 10 to 20 animals and have the average score for a group of animals through the summer, the DAG score, it's not asso- that's not associated with hemonchus, but it's associated with other important internal parasites. So, for instance, another important one is called Teladosagia that lives in the avamasum of sheep. It's the same one as called Ostatagia in cows that causes loose feces. But if you DAG score animals regularly through the grazing season, like for matcha scoring, if you have an average score for a group of animals and see how that average score changes throughout the grazing season, whether it's a for matcha score or a DAG score, that'll give you a relatively, well, for not much money spent, uh, an indication of the extent to which parasites are becoming a clinical problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes sense to do feet leg counts, but you can't afford to do that on everyone, 
right throughout the year. Um, the best time to be doing them, it would make sense to be doing egg counts, for instance, in ewes about, about a month before lambing, and typically we recommend it in lambs um, end of June, early July, just in a group of 10, 15 animals to mm-hmm. give you representative information, just to prove that the clinical parameters you're monitoring, like, like anemia or soiling of the rear end, just to prove that's due to parasites and not something else. Because there are other things that can cause anemia in sheep. There are other things that can cause loose feces in sheep. So if you're using clinical parameters to decide if parasites are becoming a problem and who should be dewormed, um, just confirm every year with your veterinarian by doing fecal egg counts that it is parasites. Mm -hmm. Andrew, that's great. I really appreciate some of the insights you've been able to give us, not just on what are the practical things that producers can do and how they can work with their vet, but some of the, you know, ideas behind why is resistance occurring? How is it occurring? And what do we do about it? So really appreciate your thoughts and, uh, and thanks very much for doing this. You're welcome. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Remember to check back with this podcast as we're going to continue putting up new podcasts on this issue. And we're also working on other tools and resources for both veterinarians and producers all focused on antimicrobial resistance and the practice of antimicrobial stewardship. You can find these tools and resources at www.amstewardship.ca. FAST is a collaborative initiative between the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association, ACER Consulting, government, academic, and industry partners, and its mission is to improve antimicrobial stewardship in farmed animals, prepare farmed animal owners and their veterinarians for policy and regulatory changes, and ultimately to preserve the efficacy of antimicrobials without compromising animal health or food safety. Thanks for listening. 